This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is episode 33, The Rise of Giscard. Though we will end today's episode at the cusp of a major showdown in central Italy, we actually begin somewhere else entirely. We begin this episode with some events that are shaping the rolling grasslands and mountains across the Adriatic Sea. The Holy Roman Empire had its hands pretty full during the 1040s, what with the Normans riding around southern Italy like a preschool classroom at recess only with swords and horses, as well as the young Hungarian kingdom, a vassal state to the emperor, mind you, and the internal unrest fighting through not only the growing pangs of succession crises, but also of something possibly more devastating, a peasant's revolt. A revolt that is centering on whether Christianity was to be adopted at all. Not a pretty picture on either side of the Adriatic, for sure. I hope you enjoy the show. Settled initially by the Celts on their westward march out of the rolling, windswept plains of Central Asia, Around 5 to 6,000 BCE, the lands that comprised the Kingdom of Hungary in the 11th century, some 7,000 years after the initial settlements, were then occupied by descendants of other Central Asian peoples. The Huns invaded and overran the crumbling Western Roman Empire's centuries and residents in a wave of initial violence. Cities we know today as Budapest and Sicambria, among others, now sit atop these deeply ancient Celtic towns and villages. And in the late 1040s, these lands had coalesced into a formidable kingdom, founded almost a half-century earlier by a formidable man, a man who would secure Christianity as the religion of the kingdom and one day be canonized as a saint. His name is King St. Stephen I of the Kingdom of Hungary. He would also establish the Arpad dynasty in the kingdom, which would lead Stephen's people, a people of Celtic, Latin, Hun, and Magyar descent, for around 500 years off and on, of course. The problem throughout the embattled 1040s in the Hungarian kingdom was the issue of Christianity versus paganism. Remember what we learned about Scandinavian conversions with the likes of Harold Bluetooth in Denmark and St. Olaf II of Norway. Conversion to Christianity would always happen at the top and most likely for the purpose of diplomatic strategy. The nobility would then adopt the new religion under the same duress so as to keep peace in their humble regions with the overall leader. 
but the lower classes would be very reluctant to sacrifice their old ways in favor of the new as it would have a very little direct benefit to their lives. Besides, it's a difficult sell to people to simply adopt one set of deeply profound religious practices and beliefs in favor of another set, simply because a noble person requested or forced them to do so. This came to a head in the mid to late 1040s, with what's come to be known as the Vata Pagan Uprising, in which a pagan nobleman rose up from the Christian monarchy, or excuse me, rose up against the Christian monarchy and fellow nobility in the kingdom. It was a brutal affair, to be quite honest. The brutality swept through the kingdom as peasants, unwilling to convert, rose up in a collective cry of religious freedom. However, as history provides time and time again, when a populace has had enough for whatever reason, they rise up loudly and employ whatever tactics their level of anger and resentment drive them to commit. The crimes that were committed were horrible, resulting, in one area, in stoning Catholic priests where they stood in some towns, which culminated in one incident in particular with a priest who, watching his fellow priests and monks being stoned to death, yes, stoned to death, this one priest kept making the sign of the cross. Well, he was thrown into a wagon, pushed up to the top of a nearby hill, and then promptly dumped off its cliff. He fell to a horrible death upon the rocky bank of the Danube River. Today, this martyrdom has been canonized, and upon the top of that hill where the vicious murder took place is a monument. The city where this took place was Budapest, at the time called Kellenhegi Hill, now referred to as Gellert Hill, in honor of Father Gellert, now patron saint of Hungary. The Vata pagan uprising marked the last significant efforts by pagans to establish their own right to worship the old gods. Eventually, paganism was eradicated from the kingdom, and the Arpad dynasty could rule a cohesive populace, more or less, under the dictates of the Pope in Rome. This, unfortunately, for the king of, Kingdom of Hungary, wasn't the only violent event during the mid-11th century. The Vata Pagan Uprising erupted amid another equally problematic issue, a succession crisis. Cousins, sons, all among the Arpad lineage of King Stephen I, vied for the crown of the growing and increasingly influential kingdom. Part of the founding of Hungary consisted of an agreement of conversion with the Pope, and with that agreement also came a vassalage of sorts to the Holy Roman Emperor. And by the time of the succession crises in the 1040s, Emperor Henry III of the Holy Roman Empire was compelled to get involved in the goings-on of his problematic kingdom to the southeast. A lot was at stake in Hungary, as Hungary was a buffer with the unrest in Bulgaria that the Byzantines were forced to deal with, as well as it simply being a geographically large and largely empty still land, 
in which to cultivate more loyalty as well as market goods to enrich the overall kingdom and the empire. In short, Hungary was no small matter. And Emperor Henry III couldn't afford to not only allow the pagans to establish their own practices officially within the kingdom, but, possibly more importantly, he couldn't afford the succession to simply be left to chance. Direct intervention to ensure the decades-long agreement was a must. What were the effects of the emperor's focus on Hungary during the 1040s? Well, as they say, while the cat's away, the mice come out to play. While Henry III was lasered in on Hungary, the goings-on of Apulia, Calabria, and Sicily were largely ignored as a consequence. A natural consequence, I might add, as resources, both material and human, are a scarcity in the world, then as it is now. So while the Holy Roman Empire launched their efforts toward Hungary, the likes of the Drangos, the Hauteville, well, that was left to chance, the very thing they weren't willing to gamble with in Hungary. That, in and of itself, is telling. The importance placed upon Hungary, compared to the southern Italy and Sicily, broadcast a message to the entire Mediterranean world of the Holy Roman Empire's chief concerns, at least in the 1040s. Though the Pope at any other given time would have supported the interventions in Hungary, and to be sure the Pope did support Henry III's efforts in Hungary, there was no doubt added stress upon the papacy in Rome concerning the Norman threats to the south. And it wasn't just the Normans either. Don't forget that the Byzantines were also in possession of the Italian lands and waters to the south of Rome. The papacy, in addition to all that, had the Lombards, who swore allegiances to either Rome or Constantinople, depending on the placement of the Lombard nobility. The 11th century was a century of upheaval. The 11th century was a turning point, really, for world history, with regards to changes occurring that would directly impact our world today, 1,000 years later. At the time, though? There was no way to know this. Hungarians were experiencing growing pains, as I've said. Emperors were doing what emperors do. Religion was, at least with regards to earthly morality and ethics, in a downward spiral. And, as the pattern holds, less influential people, when dealt with a choice of obedience or self-reliance, began asserting themselves in places outside their initial circles. The Hautevilles were a large family in a small area. It was natural, as less influential people, they would seek their fortunes elsewhere. William and his brother Drogo were the two eldest sons who knew their fortunes were simply not to be found in in the Cotentin in Normandy. Though the duchy was experiencing a rapid change due to the death of the duke, and the ascension of his young, illegitimate son, they had set off despite this. Tales of adventure and wealth from southern Italy influenced them too much for them to stick around the embattled duchy. 
We know already on this podcast of the exploits of William de Hauteville, a man who unseated the Saracen emir of Syracuse and nearly cut the man in two, thus saving the day and, well, upstaging two legends in the making, the Byzantine general George Maniakis and the Varangian guard leader Harold Sigurdsson. William in that moment became known as William Ironarm, and William would soon be elected the leader of the Normans in Apulia, after pulling his hundreds of knights from Maniaki's service. But William died at the young age of 35 in the year 1046, the same year as the Vata Pagan uprising in Hungary, leaving his slightly younger brother, the brother who had accompanied him to Italy 12 years earlier, named Drogo as his heir. The head of the Normans in the south again was now Drogo de Hauteville, who had married into the Lombard aristocracy, as had William, by the way, by welding Altrude of Salerno in 1047. Also in 1047, it was a given who would succeed William de Hauteville as head of the Normans in Italy. It really came down to two powerful and influential Normans in the area, Drogo, of course, and a man named Peter of Trani. Drogo de Hauteville, well, seemed to have the right name, though by all accounts he was similar to his older brother insofar as his bravery and leadership abilities. But the biggest event in 1047 wasn't Drogo's elected position among the Normans, nor was it his marriage that further established de Hauteville roots there in southern Italy. No, between the Hungarian efforts and the impending problems boiling up to his, to his west in Laurent, then called the kingdom of Lotharingia, the Holy Roman Emperor was able to head south to Rome. Drogo was able to meet the emperor, and he was able to pay homage to the emperor. With this, Drogo was legitimized in the eyes, ears, hearts, minds, and maybe more importantly, records, of the Mediterranean world. This was, to be quite honest, no small event. A de Hauteville was legitimized in the eyes and ears of the church as well. So after years of unrest to his south, the Pope now had a Norman nobleman to interact with. This was, of course, a relationship of convenience on both sides of the agreement, and nothing more. I think we've learned enough about Normans to know that nothing, just like the Vikings, nothing is permanent. The Pope couldn't rely on the Lombards to handle the Saracens who ruled Sicily, not to mention to become a Western-oriented buffer to the Byzantines. These Norman upstarts, not even Normans from well-to-do or influential families either, they flooded in and started making waves for the Byzantines and the Saracens in Sicily, but they were hardly loyal to the Pope and his papal states at at the beginning. Now, the Holy Roman Emperor legitimized one of these Normans? Well, what's a Pope to do, right? Oh, And those thinning ties with Constantinople, between Rome and Constantinople, that is, were accelerating to a point of, really to a point of no return for both major hearts of Christianity. 
The late 1040s was a volatile time within the confines of the church leadership as well. But we'll get to that story in time. But back to Drogo de Hautful. Drogo could be handled. He knew the area well by then. He knew the politics of Middle and Southern Italy enough to not do anything stupid, at least. And he seemed a reasonable leader as far as Normans go. Not too far from anyone's mind, it's worth noting, was the fact that Normans were recent descendants of Vikings. No one forgot this whenever they dealt with Normans. To the 11th century European mindset, Norman still equaled Viking by common definition. Drogo's younger brother, Humphrey de Hauteville, arrived in 1044, but he was largely silent in his dealings, seeming to be satisfied with following his older brother's leads on matters in Apulia. But something else happened in 1047 that would echo across time, though at the time, again, no one had any clue that it was as monumental as it was. In fact, Drogo de Hauteville did his best to make this event a non-issue, a non-issue that wouldn't be remembered past the year 1047 itself. How dismally wrong he was. 1047 also saw the arrival in southern Italy in the court of Drogo de Hauteville of a man who would push the region into further upheaval and fundamentally alter the makeup of southern Italy and indirectly do the same to the island of Sicily. This newcomer was the sixth son of a minor nobleman residing in the Catentin in the Duchy of Normandy to the north. And being the first son to a second wife, he was despised by his older brothers, at least one in particular. And one older brother, in 1047, was in a position of power that could act upon this hatred and resentment. But despite Drogo's feelings, this young man seemed to be impervious to it all. In fact, it would soon be realized that not much at all could faze this guy. In 1047, a young man named Robert de Hauteville arrived in Drogo's court, seeking adventure, renown, and wealth. But he wouldn't die with that name, just like his eldest brother William didn't die being known chiefly as William de Hauteville. This young man was clever beyond words, and he was brave beyond doubt. He would, as we've mentioned on the podcast already, first find himself on a fool's errand created by Drogo in Calabria. And this fool's errand wasn't meant to merely occupy the young man and cast him aside. No, it was most likely far, far more sinister than that. Drogo's enmity toward Robert really stemmed from the age-old tale of what a blended family experiences, the older kids resenting the new mother and subsequently anything she does or creates for the family. Robert was her first addition to the family aside from herself. And by the time Drogo left for Italy, Robert was, wasn't anything more than a punk teenager, no doubt, which would have hardly helped this relationship. 
Land was scarce in southern Italy. Well, in terms of nobility getting a cut of territory. Just a year earlier, Drogo rose into the position of power over all of Norman nobility in Apulia, as we've said, assuming William's via or excuse me, assuming William's villa in Melfi. While Humphrey de Hauteville assumed Drogo's previous title as nobleman of Venosa and surrounding lands. As for Robert, there was simply no room left. After his fool's errand in Calabria, Robert returned, surprising his older brother with tales of him subduing, or at least, at the very least, um, terrorizing the Greek-speaking inhabitants of Calabria, Calabria, or the tip of the boot of Italy, that is. If you remember from a previous episode, Robert molded a mini-legend around himself with his cunning exploits that allowed his men to survive in the wilds of Calabria, completely cut off from any real Norman support, including survival resources and food. One such scheme Robert employed required his men to torch a crop field and then charge the locals for his men to put it out. Compound this with the other end of a double-edged choice between starvation and Norman retribution. And, well, there's only one real choice, isn't there? Robert's wiles and cleverness, as well as his brutality in meeting his ends, should it be necessary, had become renown. First being recorded in 1049, he had earned a nickname that would stick with him throughout his life, rarely having his surname de Hauteville used after a certain point. As we've said, William did not die with his name or his last name either, did he? And here in 1049, the legend of Robert Giscard was born. And when Robert returned an expected reward from Drogo, Drogo remained indignant to his little brother. Again, he had no land to give Robert, not that he was likely inclined to give him any anyway. Now the reality was, though southern Italy was a pretty pretty crowded place in terms of Norman and Lombard nobility by the late 1040s, Remember, throughout this decade, the Byzantines, even despite the periodic presence of the great Maniaches, well, they continued to shoot themselves in the foot and lose more and more land to these Normans. So Drogo's decision to deny his brother any land might have been somewhat understandable, though there's another part of leadership that is often overlooked, though. The ability to see the potential in a subordinate. Drogo, in essence, completely underestimated Robert. Completely. Do you remember how William and Drogo both married into Lombard nobility in Salerno? Well, just like not all Normans were allied and friendly, not all Lombards were allied and friendly with each other either. Robert, at that point in 1048, he sought support elsewhere. From Salerno on the Tyrrhenian coast, Robert simply leapfrogged over the tiny city-state of Amalfi, and he rode into Salerno's Lombard archenemy, Capua, presenting himself at the court of Pandolf IV, whom he quickly endeared himself to. This was, however, very short-lived, as by 1049, Pandolf IV denied Robert his 
daughter's hand in marriage as he had promised. So the resourceful Robert returned to Drogo's court to the east and all but begged him for some land of his own, as every single Norman knight knew that power and influence came not necessarily from military success, but from a fief or land of his own. Having capitalized on Robert's earlier successes at Calabria, though giving the younger brother none of the credit, of course, Drogo reluctantly gave Robert the backwater keep of Scribla there. Though he wasn't exactly happy about his new digs, Robert made the most of it and exchanged his support and base of operations in the area with the Norman family at Buonobergo. In 1051, as Robert continued to struggle and essentially running the same campaigns of terror in the surrounding lands to raise money and resources, Alberada, his new wife, brought along over 200 Norman knights in her service that she would transfer to Robert de Hauteville, again at this time Robert Guiscard, command as a dowry. In addition to bolstering Robert's retinue, a sign of a growing influence for any nobleman anywhere in Europe, Alberada also gifted Robert two children, a daughter Emma and a son, Bohemond, who students of history should immediately recognize. With his newfound influence and power, Robert knew he still wasn't in league in the league of power and influence as, as his eldest living brother Drogo, and he knew that he couldn't count on Drogo to help him anyway, so he settled on the idea that he was pretty much on his own. Then, in the fall of 1051, word came of a death that would alter the course of current events on the Italian peninsula for Robert. Back in August, Drogo had died. Well, he hadn't just died. Drogo was murdered. Near Bovino, a town that Drogo had wrested control away from the Byzantines years earlier. Arhiris, the local Byzantine catapan, or regional governor, was rumored to have orchestrated the murder. As the tip of the spear of his plan to lead a reconquest of former Byzantine lands in Apulia and subsequently Calab Calabria and then on to Sicily. Drogo seemed to have been on the way home to Melfi after a private meeting with Pope Leo IX, which only showed just how, dare I say, prominent Drogo and the Normans had become in regional politics. In fact, the powerful Pope Leo IX was actually sent there at the behest of Emperor Henry III to try to talk some sense into his Norman vassals. Essentially, the emperor had had enough of Norman raids into the Papal States and other areas under his domain. It's time his Norman subordinate took the reins of his knights and you just know there was an or else attached to it. Besides, as we'll learn soon enough, Pope Leo IX was no pushover himself. As for the Pope and his emperor, the discussion was no doubt a fruitful one. Drogo, however, had his work cut out for him. If the Normans were anything, they were industrious. And industriousness as a personality trait is one that carries with it a high degree of independence. 
They may swear loyalty to Drogo de Hauteville, but they were still going to do what they felt they needed to do to better their position. I mean, that is why they decided to head south in the first place, right? So with the news that the Emperor required their raids to cease, the news never exactly made it. Drogo fell along the way, and no sooner had his body been buried in the Hauteville family tomb at Venosa, another Hauteville rose to fill the gap. In walks the so far silent Humphrey, fourth and last child of the first wife of Tancred. As Humphrey took the reins of the southern Normans, as they were sometimes referred to, he soon saw the situation for what it clearly was rebellion. Norman knights were leading raids against papal lands, due to Drogo paying homage to Henry III of the Holy Roman Empire. Again, it wasn't quite a given that the Normans would fall in line, but it was at least expected. But expectations weren't enough, apparently, hence Drogo's fateful meeting with the Pope. Normans tended to defy any expectations put upon them, if you haven't picked that up yet. And Humphrey, having gained the support of the leader of Salerno, he was in a strong enough standing in the region in 1051 to establish some semblance of order. But that soon ran out as Salerno's leader, Guillemar IV, died by June of 1052. From there, Humphrey had his hands full, to say the very least. Holding the region together, especially with the Byzantines beginning to show force once again, was no small feat. But the biggest obstacle wasn't the Byzantines. Nor was it Humphrey's own Normans. And nor was it even that rambunctious, clever, and ambitious younger brother, Robert. Humphrey would be required to deal with forces only matched by his brother, William, when, in 1053... He gathered his forces and and he marched north. Yeah, you heard that right. North. North toward the Papal States. North toward Rome. And north toward forces led by, well, forces led by the Pope. Pope Leo IX himself. This will result in yet another history-bending event orchestrated by the Normans, and it will set a dangerous precedent going forward. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as we bounced from one side of the Adriatic to the other, and this is really only the first half of this particular story. Stay tuned for the second half next week. Please, Keep sharing this podcast with those you know and on your social media accounts. Don't forget to tag us too if you share us on Twitter at Wheel Podcast or drop a quick line about the latest episode on Facebook, Fortune's Wheel Podcast. We've also expanded to the Good Pods app, so I encourage you to head over there and stay in touch too. Also, you can email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com and please consider supporting the show on Patreon if you're so inclined. With the rise of the brigand and bandit knight Robert Guiscard, Humphrey and his fellow Norman knights were about to embark 
on a dangerous and unprecedented campaign in Italy. On the next episode, though, we zoom in on a specific battle. This battle would have far-reaching effects and establish the Normans as a permanent presence on the boot. And I dare say beyond as well. I can't wait to tell you about it. Thank you.